This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. Thanks to our associate producer and our friend, Dion Simpkins. I can always count on the music he's playing to get me excited in the morning, so thank you for that, Dion. Um, again, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my friend and co-host this morning, Professor Adi Weiner from the statistics department. So, Adi, obviously we've talked some basketball this morning already. We've talked some baseball this morning already. But I think as all of our listeners on Wharton Moneyball know, um, I'm actually, I love the, both those sports, but I'm also equally, I'm, I'm a fanatical tennis fan. You I, sure are. I love tennis. I love playing the I, game. I, I loved it too when I was in high school, but I've, the, uh, I stopped playing in high school, so I'm not quite as uh, into it as I once was. Yeah, I just, I love the sport. I love everything about it. I love the strategy in the sport, etc. But you're not here to hear me talk about tennis. We're here to talk with our next guest, Craig O'Shaughnessy, about tennis. Uh, Craig is widely recognized as one of the world leaders in teaching and analyzing tennis strategy. Uh, Craig specializes in, in this area of the sport. Uh, he created uh, Brain Game Tennis. We've obviously spoken to Craig before here on Wharton Moneyball. And so, Craig, uh, welcome to the show. This is Eric Brown. And I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Craig. It's great to talk to you again. Um, could you tell us, um, one of the questions I always like to ask is, you know, all of our uh, guests here on Wharton Moneyball, and I'm sure many of our listeners want to know this, like, how did you get into this? Could you start just with a little bit about your background, both academic, professional, and otherwise, and how that leads you to a life of teaching, analyzing, and talking about tennis strategy? Yeah, well, it, it's interesting is that both of you guys um, have a love of statistics and, and obviously as part of that, a love of math. When I was in high school, I almost failed math. I, it was my worst subject. I hated going to that period um, and, and studying stats and math and everything that goes along with it. I like the English side. I like the writing. I have a journalism degree. But when I got heavily involved in tennis, and tried to figure out what mattered most to winning. You know, you look at nutrition, you look at fitness, you look at technique, you look at technology. It was very evident to me that the strategy of our game, where the ball goes much more than, than how you hit it, um, matters the most. And so I've got to figure out, okay, which strategies are better in our sport? It's statistics, it's numbers, it's percentages. And, you know, I've always said numbers of the language of tennis, the, the more we know the percentages of um, the, the various elements of our sport, you know, we have serving, returning, rallying, approaching, is it better to serve out wide than down the tee? Is it better to hit a forehand or a backhand? Is it better to come to net or stay back? These are questions as a young coach that I wanted answers for in a sport that had no answers. It was very much opinion, very much guesswork. You get 100 coaches in a room Looking at a tennis match, you are definitely going to get 100 different opinions. So I got some Dartfish software, uh, a match tagging program within that, and started doing a lot of analysis and very much became involved in the math side and the stats side of our game. So it, 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 it evolved from wanting to know how I could teach my players to win more matches. So, Craig, if this is Adi Weiner. I, I heard your 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 uh, observation that you were an English person and not a math person when you were yeah. in high school. I will point out that I failed math ninth grade 
one one of the quarters, <laughs> and it was simply because I just I was wasn't able to engage in what was being taught. So yeah. so you might have secretly been a math person, you just didn't find the particular <laughs> mathematics that you were being taught at the time is interesting. Uh, all right, well, Craig, this is Eric Brown. I'm going to take over here. I mean, yeah. you guys could commiserate on your failing grades in ninth grade math, but let's. We actually have the French Open coming up. So the first question I want to ask you, I have a thousand questions for you, but let me yeah. start with the first one. How is it possible that one person, Rafa Nadal, could be so great on this surface? He's not just the king of clay. He's the king. He's the prince. He's the everything of clay. I've never in all my years, I'm 51 years old. I've been watching tennis from I, the I'm glory days. How can, You're 51 as well. And so, so am I. I. Actually, we have, <laughs> hey, we've got that in common. We've got it all. We've got it all here. <laughs> how does someone, how is he so great on clay? Is it the spin of his shots? Is it the placement of his shots? Is it his movement? Is it his ability to slide? How can one player be so much greater than everybody else on a given surface? Yeah, he is. He's found another level at the moment. I think the first thing to put on the table is that players, their form rises and their form drops. You know, a couple of years ago, um, you know, Nadal on clay wasn't doing so well. He was struggling like crazy. I remember watching the Madrid final against Andy Murray, and uh, it was almost embarrassing how bad he was playing. You know, he, he's, he's back. He's playing well. And our eyes... You know, a lot of people all over the world are going to look at the down and say, he's the king of the long rallies. He's, you know, he, he torches you from the back of the court. Yes, his spin is amazing. But, you know, when you go, a couple of other things to, to consider here. I'm flying over to Paris on uh, Saturday. I'll be there Saturday morning. Saturday afternoon, I'm going to walk out onto Philippe Chatrier to that court. Our idea of a clay court is that we can reach down with our hands and, and, and get some loose clay on the surface and put our two hands together and then cup, you know, a, a substantial amount of loose clay into our hands. It's simply not true. You've got to bring almost a shovel over to that cord to start scraping it to find anything loose on the top of that surface. So, so it's a hard cord. It just happens to be a clay hard cord. Exactly. Wait. So, so, exactly. so uh, this is Adi Weiner again. Uh, can you yeah. clarify to me that for me, as who's not doesn't know as much about tennis as Eric and and you obviously do, the clay is is supposed to be slower. That's my understanding. And so, and you, what you're saying is it's not a slower surface. That no, my, it's, not. My, it's not. So then, what is? So then, what makes it different? I mean, why is Nadal unbeatable on clay and obviously not unbeatable on all the other surfaces? Well, There's something yeah, there. Very good point. Um, he, remember, he did win the U.S. Open last year. So the guy's not okay, but he's won f- how many? Clay he's got courts, just so right, everybody, yeah. just so our listeners who are in Wharton Moneyball know, um, he's got ten French Open titles, and he's only got six other majors <laughs> in total, are, and all the no, others. No, no, so, I'm saying I understand that, but still, let's not make it seem like I mean, if but he his only probability ha- of winning the French is like eighty percent. All right, by the way, let's have Craig. We'd love to hear your answer, but let's not make it seem like Nadal. Even yeah. if he took away his ten French Opens, he'd still be one of the greatest twenty players yeah, of all yeah, times. Exactly. But exactly. please, if you could tell us your thought about the clay versus other surface differential. Yeah, good point. Um, at every single level of our game, and, and this is something that IBM, um, I, I first started looking at what they were doing back in 2015, and it's the length of the rally. And, you know, we, we as tennis players and coaches and fans of the game, we watch points being played, 
and we see short points, we see medium points, and we see long points. It has never really occurred to us to figure out is there a dominance effect by winning if you win more of the short points or you win more of the long points. You know, when we look at the practice court and as coaches, we are constantly telling our players that consistency rules our world, that getting more balls in the court is good, that shot tolerance is amazing. And, but once you break down the numbers and the 2015 Australian Open is when I started with this, you find that the rally length of zero through four, and the zero represents a double fault. And it's important to understand this at the beginning. The way IBM calculate rally length is the ball must land in the court for it to count. So if I serve to you, it's in. You return to me, it's in. And I hit a winner, rally length of three. But if I make an error on that third shot, it's counted as a rally length of two. So that's that, that's an important thing to, to know at the start. How okay, they, how they so what do, we, yeah, what do we know about, um, let's call it, the top-tier players and winning at various lengths? Great, great question. So even in girl, the same for Nadal on clay, for Federer on grass, for girls 12 somewhere played here in Austin, Texas, where I am, two kangaroos playing on the dark side of the moon. It doesn't matter. The 0 through 4 rally length is the number one rally length in our sport. So that's a serve, a return, and the two shots that follow, serve plus one and return plus one. More points end in the first two touches than anything else. So when we go back to the Rome final, which happened on Sunday, the number one... And I'll ask you guys, did you see that match, by the way? I watched the did entire that? match. As a matter of fact, I think I watched every match in that tournament. But yes, okay. I did see that match, and I felt bad because uh, maybe you could, uh, we'll talk about this. Let's finish this stop. Let me just tell you, yes. I felt bad because I thought that if that rain delay hadn't happened, the yeah. momentum was on Zverev's side, You're and right. he was You're going right. to win that match. Okay, so in, the, in that final, there, there was some double faults. There was two double faults. So we have two double faults in the zero rally length. Um, the long rallies, we had two rallies that were 20 shots long. So what do you think was the mode? And I had a... I think it was about a 12-year-old boy tell me this once. I'm like, I'm doing a presentation. I asked the audience, what is the most common rally length in tennis? This little boy at the back goes, oh, you mean the mode? I'm like, well, I guess I do. That's what I mean. So you sat there and watched it. You saw all those rallies. You saw the long rallies and the grinding rallies. Which rally length? Was the most common so let, let Adi and I each guess. This is Eric Bradlow. Yeah. And by the way, for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, this is Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. Uh, we're talking to Craig O'Shaughnessy uh, from Brain Game Tennis. Craig is one of the world leaders in teaching and analyzing tennis strategy, and we're talking about the French Open. If you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for Craig, please call us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So I have two guesses. Um, two guesses? Well, you get I'm, one guess. I'm going to give you my, my <laughs> most likely guess, but but here was the first two thoughts that entered my mind. One is um, the modal is you win a point on the serve, and so that would be a rally length of one, I guess. The other one would be that you win it in three, which means you serve, the other guy gets the return back somehow, some way, and then the next ball is put away. So if you had to make me guess, I'm going to say three. Adi Weiner, I, you go I, ahead. I, I feel like I should have jumped in first because I'm not the tennis expert. I agree, and I thought of those two things exactly. So One or three. but we're, one, one, I went with one as, as the modal. Remember, they're probably not that frequent. So, and Remember, when you think about mode, it's maybe... 
probably 15% of well, our rallies. And that's partly are what that I think way. Craig's going to talk to us about. The mode could be, mode is the most common by definition, but it doesn't mean it has to happen more than 50% of the time. But the thing is, is those 20 long, those, those are much longer. You, you feel like they happen I know, all, all but, much And that's of, Craig's point. So, Craig, yeah. tell us, which, was either of us right or are we close at all? Well, I'm going I'm to lead in with, with just a little bit of history here. Last year, I was down at IMG Boletari at the Academy, and Nick Boletari gets up very early in the morning, 5 o'clock on the court every day. So I get up for breakfast around 6, and I walk out there to the court, and he's on the court, and I start talking to him about this. So I go, Nick, what is the number one rally length of tennis? And he looks at me and says, Craig, no one's ever asked me that question. That's interesting to me. So he had a guess, and he guessed four. He said, I bet four shots in the court happen more than anything else. Last November, I was in L.A. with Novak Djokovic. We were preparing the, the upcoming season. I asked Novak the exact same question. Novak, what do you think the number one rally length of tennis? They say, he says four. I just spent the last week traveling all over Italy. I went to six different cities from the north to the south. I had all of these elite coaches that I was delivering the new analytics in our game. The most common answer was, was in the three, four, or five range. Gentlemen, you are 100% correct. In the Rome final, on clay with Nadal, the number one rally length that occurred the most was a rally length of one. It happened 23 times. We think the long rallies, I'll I'll pick one here, an eight-shot rally. An eight-shot rally happened nine times. A six-shot rally happened eight times. A two-shot rally happened nine times. Our eyes remember the long, spectacular running you know, the, the great winners. But the serve in and it not coming back happens. The, it's the most Very common. common. Yeah. So, level it so, so, Craig, since we're also, a, I don't say a business show, but you also have in your description of what you do is about strategy. So that would suggest two things to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong. One is um, if I want to improve as a player, number one, improve my serve. Number two, improve my return ability. Like, in other words, that may give you the largest delta just because those are the most frequent points. Is that, a, is that an imp- inappropriate way of thinking about it? Or, or what's the implication of what you're saying? It's ab- absolutely perfect. So w- when you look globally at our practice court, 50 minutes, you know, the most common thing is you go out there for one hour with your coach. And you spend, on average, everywhere around the world, 50 minutes practicing forehands and backhands until the cows come home. And then the last 10 minutes, we'll get some token serving, um, some approach and volley, but the return of serve is the least practice shot in our sport. And when we see the numbers, the numbers clearly suggest that our practice court needs modifying. We should not be spending 50 minutes grinding and working on our 10-shot 10, 10 rallies and our 14-shot rallies. Yes, the serve is more important than we ever thought, and the return of serve especially, is what we need to work on more. But can you ask, answer the question we, I had a, about five minutes ago about why clay? What, why, does it make, why is Nadal better on clay? And what I think you're implying is it's not necessarily because he's better in the long rallies. Exactly, exactly. He, he wins. Nadal was the master of the short rally. And the 0-3-4 rally, I call, you know, the nickname is first strike. So what happens on clay that's a little different? The way your, your foot interacts on clay is different than the other surfaces. You're going to slide a lot on clay. So playing behind the player is much more efficient on clay than it is on other surfaces because it's tougher to stop and recover. The other thing is that the ball interacts. The granules of clay 
interact with the felt um, more than they do on hardcore. So you get more bang for your buck with spin. Mm-hmm. So Nadal has so much spin on his serve, on his, on his forehand especially, and the ball, the grit of the ball will also make it slow down. So the way that Nadal has figured out for him that works best, to return serve, he stands back almost to the fence, and he lets the ball slow down uh, from the serve, and he takes a full-blooded crack at that shot. And the guy is so strong, he can get it deep. But our eyes see him standing back there at the start of the point, but we, we don't see him at the end of the point where he's always up around the baseline or inside the baseline. He chooses to make an insane amount of returns by moving back and letting the return slow down and, and take the pressure, the time pressure, and the core position pressure out of it. So, Craig, we only have a few more minutes with you. I wanted to talk about the actual t- um, upcoming French Open that's coming. So yeah. I was a little surprised to find out that um, Nadal, you know, we talk about betting lines all the time here on Wharton Moneyball, is basically you have to bet 300 to win 100 for, on Nadal, which means he's a 75% odds of winning the title. I yeah. found that extraordinarily high. Um, number one, you never know injuries, other stuff. Um, number two, um, I, uh, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, um, in the last 25 years of the French Open, the number one seed on the men's side has only won it four times, which is surprising to me, out of 25. Yeah. So do you think Nadal being a 75% chance to win the French is about right? Uh, I think it should be higher. Higher? Why is that? Yeah, Because he's, I put a lot of um, emphasis on the form coming in. Uh, and, and his form is outrageous. I mean, he may, he's putting up numbers this year that, that, uh, that are as good as they've ever been. But one thing to also understand, remember we talk about the 0-4 rally link being so dominant. Who is the number one player in the history of our game with second serve points won? Who would you guess? Second serve points won. Yeah. yeah. Um, would, would you take Sampras, Becker, Goran? I would have... Karlovic? Yeah, I was actually going to, I would have guessed, actually, I'm sure I'm off. I would have actually guessed someone like a John Isner just because of how much he actually goes for his second serve. But you're telling me it's none of those people. So you're going to tell me it's Nadal. It's Nadal. That's unmo- that, that's shocking. <laughs> <laughs> it's Nadal. Yeah. Who is, and I think he's number two in the history of our sport with second serve return points one. So he's just so incredibly good at the start of the point. And then the end of the point, he's also very good. Um, a couple of years ago, when he won, I think it was 2009, I'm, I'm guessing now, but back back around then, I was in Canada, in Toronto, and he's in form, and he says a comment in, a, in, a, in an interview, he goes, yeah, I'm really setting myself for, for, um, for the U.S. Open. So I had a bet with a guy sitting next to me. I said, I will give you the field. I will take one guy for the U.S. Open. I'll take Nadal, and I'll give you everybody else. And I feel exactly the same way this year. I'll Despite Nadal, we only have about two twenty-seven. Yeah, we only have about two minutes left. But I want to ask you about that. Do you agree? You, you we both saw the final in uh, Madrid last week, or Madrid, right? Madrid last weekend. Uh, Rome last week. Madrid. Rome. Madrid. Rome. Sorry, Rome. You agree with me that it looked like Zverev was going to win that match, correct? Yes. And despite yes. that, no rain? yeah, if there was no rain. So, but yeah. despite that, you're still taking Nadal against the field. Is it because number one, that's a three set match? Let's play. Let's play at five and see what happens. Or you just felt like even then? I mean, the reality is Nadal did win the match. We can talk about any hypothetical you want, but Nadal won the match. There's a thing in our sport where you get when you get ahead, you start reaching for the finish line mentally. 
you stop focusing on the the here and now tactics and you just you reach for the finish line and you start having thoughts of like I've already won the match and I think that's what happened to Nadal in that final he was 6-1 in the first set things were going so smoothly so easily and he takes his foot off the accelerator a little bit and all of a sudden he's down down uh, 6-1 in the second and down a break in the third rain comes goes to the locker room says to himself you know the coaches have a thought it's like Rafa just go and play your game. Hit the ball. Be aggressive. Do your normal things. Got his head right back on it. Won five straight games. It. Won five straight yeah. games to finish that match. There, there you go. I don't think, I, and I think that was a great little dress rehearsal. Those problems can pop up. It popped up in the Rome final. I do not expect it to pop up again in, in so Paris. Maybe, and if it, maybe just in 30 seconds, since we only have 30 yeah. seconds left. There is the other side of the draw. There's just the women's side of the draw. Anybody you like, particularly in the women's side, it appears wide open to me. I have no clue whatsoever who's going to win the women's side. I have no clue. I mean, uh, how, how about that? I'll pull Halep out of the bag. I watched her up a set and a break last year in the final. She got mad. She got upset. She lost it. She'll, hopefully she can go the extra yards this year. Well, Craig, um, first of all, thank you for all the knowledge you shared with us here on Morton Moneyball today. Uh, we've been talking to Craig O'Shaughnessy, uh, world leader in teaching and analyzing tennis strategy. Uh, you can find him on Brain Game Tennis. So, uh, Craig, thank you for joining us here this morning on Morton Moneyball. My pleasure. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 